0: People see only what you allow them to see. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. If you love the pod and can support the work, visit glow.fm slash potabing. There's also a link in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who has and continues to. It means a lot. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and most other places, at Pada Today, we're going to dive deep into the innards of a wedding invitation. Welcome by some, scorned by others. And hey, we've all been there, right? Admittedly, I've only looked forward to like two of the weddings we've been invited to. Virtually every other goddamn time, I had the same look Rusty did at the top of this episode. This 70th episode of the series was written by Terrence Winter and was directed by Steve Buscemi. Another time they teamed up on this show, and of course, as a precursor to their legendary run together on Boardwalk Empire. The other episodes we've seen them together on the show so far were Pine Barrens and In Camelot. This episode originally aired on April 9th, 2006, the same day Phil Mickelson collected his second green jacket at the Masters. As luck and our favorite number would have it, he's won three so far. HBO synopsis, Johnny files a petition to attend his daughter's wedding. At the wedding, Johnny pressures Tony to help him eliminate someone. Later, the Fed drags Johnny away in tears, arousing Phil's contempt. Vito fears for his life after an associate sees him at a gay bar. And Tony makes a dramatic move to regain respect from his crew. The title is likely a reference to three things. There's three again. A wedding invitation a request for a temporary release from custody, and a request for Tony to nip something in the bud. So, we open on a wedding invitation. Johnny Sack's daughter is getting married, but not in a Phil Spector, Dixie Cups, Chapel of Love kind of way. Nothing that simple for the king of New York and his tribe. The daughter of note is Allegra Marie, indeed, also known as an antihistamine. Sidebar Donatella Versace's daughter is also named Allegra. Wonder if that was an inspiration. Question Ever since Migos and Drake joined forces on the track Versace, can you ever say Versace just once? Or are you compelled, like me, to say it? Six times. And with a certain cadence on beat. New York is the high are me. It's revealed while staring down at the invitation that Rusty's sitting on a pile of mail. Could be present day Rusty too, right? Anybody else still putting all their mail in a decontamination box for a couple of days before going through it? He's got a forlorn look on his face. The grimace. Lost in thought. Oblivious to his wife calling out to him. But why so mad? Recall the power struggle between his guy, Little Carmine, and Johnny Sack. He picked the wrong horse. And he's been off kilter. Askew ever since. Also, this episode will reveal more about his puzzle piece in this show. Namely, that he should not could, should have been the boss. Count of Monte Cristo over here. Cut to six weeks later. There's that rare use of the slow fade again. Although they've used it enough times, I guess it's not so rare anymore. Also, we've never seen text convey the passage of time before in the show. At least I'm almost certain we haven't. But we've seen a bunch of different methods to convey the passage of time on the show. Long fades, blurs, Bobby sitting and thinking on a chair and where's Johnny, and then a cut in the same chair, but different position in the next frame. And of course, my favorite use of the passage of time, the landscape of New Jersey. The bridges, the backdrops, the landmarks, It's the anchor of the whole show. We hear a buzzer and are met with an overhead shot of Johnny Sack, enjoying a cigarette. You swear he was handed one the second he emerged from his mother's womb. And even right then, he knew precisely what to do with it. Finger mechanics and dexterity were off the charts, even before being discharged from the hospital. He's dressed in his prison orange uniform. A great context and contrast to what's coming. He's deep in thought. Contemplating the guest list. Contemplating some snubs. Contemplating the splits on the Barone sale. His lawyer comes in. An assistant hangs up a suit. A Brioni. Brioni, of course, is an Italian menswear high fashion line. Ironically, now owned by a French conglomerate. The name comes from the once-called Brionian Islands, now part of Croatia. With respect to those islands, like Richie, it would seem, Italy couldn't fucking sell it. Fun aside, their current creative director's last name is, get this, Nietzsche, though spelled differently. So, Johnny Sachs drips down to his boxers and socks. There's that long, wide shot of him standing there, exposed. Double effect. Proud, but also resigned. Crazy how they pulled off that paradox. As he puts his pants on, one leg at a time, the king of New York just like the rest of us, we cut to him rising in a courtroom. The Eastern District of New York. That's the federal court with jurisdiction in Long Island and parts of New York City, including Brooklyn. The hearing is for a custody release so he can attend his daughter's wedding. The state's word for the request is ludicrous. Made me think, naturally, of rapper Ludacris and his song Pimpin' All Over the World. Unlike Luda, Johnny's not trying to hit New York City streets for the Puerto Rican Day Parade or a night in New Orleans drinking hand grenades or even to go to Jamaica spending massive bucks while the ladies all beg him to mash a tuck. He's not even trying to fly to Illinois to get a taste of Chicago. Poor Johnny's out here just trying to pimp North Jersey for a couple few hours. The judge looks stern, but amused. I'd imagine this would be one of the highlights in his day, holding the king of New York by the balls like that. The defense counsel makes an appeal to emotion. Appeals to emotion are a bit of a theme this episode, as we'll see. He asks the state's attorney, was your father at your wedding? Yes, of course. The difference, the state's attorney explains, was that her father wasn't awaiting trial on 47 RICO predicates, including murder. To which I always wondered, 47 is a hell of a lot of predicates. I get the need to build a strong case, but isn't like 11 or 13... Or even 21 Rico predicates enough to move the ball down the field for the state? 47 feels like a couple lifetimes worth. Like you could spread that shit out across a couple different bosses. But who am I? Preet Bharara now? Note, Johnny Sack's family's in the background. His wife and two daughters. One of those daughters, not the one who's getting married, is played by actor Kristen Milioti, who just played opposite Andy Samberg in one of the more fun and different films I've seen in recent memory, Palm Springs. She's quite stunning in that movie, actually. Instant crush. Great actor with a bunch of esoteric and different roles spanning film and TV. So, now that I'm done crushing on Kristen, Let me close that picture on my browser. Verdict. The judge grants the application. With conditions. Six hours max. Has to be escorted by U.S. Marshals. Expenses of which are to be paid by the sacramonies. And no drugs or alcohol. No qualms. Johnny Sack agrees and is grateful. Note. These conditions are not too dissimilar from the kinds of conditions levied against me by my wife if I opt to hang out with the Sopranos instead of larger, broader society in general. Cut from the meek and resigned to the ripped and eager, the show welcomes Perry Annunziata, Muscles Marinara, a sight for sore eyes Carmela welcomes him in with an effervescent smile. Last time we saw her that delighted while opening a door was when Furio was in the mix. He's enamored with the house, checking all the boxes so far on climbing up the ranks. Then Carmela formally incorporates him into the soprano tapestry. You're Gina Annunziata's cousin, right? Who's she? Friend of Carms? unclear but whatever the case the family name is in the soprano history lexicon a friend of ours as opposed to a friend of mine tony enters the mix minces no words muscles marinara it's explained that he's doubling as muscle and driver for tony as he eases back into his grind perry reassures carmela That tease in good hands. The reason? He was runner up in the teenage Mr. Bloomfield contest. How in the fuck that's relevant is beyond me, but let's roll with it. Maybe his good looks could kill or something to that effect. Moments later in the car, Tony notices Perry's arms. The camera locks on them for a time, equal parts intriguing and uncomfortable. Topic of discussion, free weights or machines? A little bit of both, Perry says. Depends on what muscles he's trying to hit. Good question, though. Free weights or machines? The main difference, I think, and mind you, the scope of my knowledge on the matter is limited to Tim Ferriss podcasts and an assemblage of clippings from Men's Health magazine. Free weights attack multiple muscles at once, whereas machines isolate one muscle and use virtually no others. After some contemplation, Tony says he's got to get back. You know, hit the gym. A universal default response to anybody we encounter in conversation who is more fit than us. Just used it the other day. Uh, yeah, bro. I've been hitting the Peloton hard to get a new baseline body weight. Now it's time to throw in some weights. But aside from those couple instances of him on an exercise machine in his basement, when have we ever seen Tony go hard? Oh yeah. I'm reminded of the screams Melfi heard while visiting the Cusumanos. Perry says he'll make him a program. To which I always thought, Tim Grover over here. Look it up. Tony considers it but then let's Perry know he used to be able to bench 300 pounds. What the major head cold once, no less. All this gym talk made me wonder what Tony would do in the present situation. You know, in general, the closure of gyms and the overall antipathy to returning to one even when it's considered to be appropriate again. Would T get a Peloton? I feel like Carm would, for sure. Would T ride it, though? And what would his username be? Ducks Unlimited NJ? Stugatz 3? Perry isn't chatty, which could come off as respectful and deferential. Maybe some advice he got from some of the guys beforehand. Don't speak unless you're spoken to or asked a question, that kind of thing. But also, the way the camera locks on him and his corresponding expression it could be read that he's not buying Tony's remember when story. At least, that's how Tony could perceive his silence is all. For some quick context on how much 300 pounds is, the NFL combine weight is 225 pounds. Players are tested based on how many reps of 225 they can do. Now, I'm not comparing Tony to an NFL combine player. But if he could bench 300, he could definitely rep 225 at least a couple few times. And if that's the case, Junior, like Sufjan Stevens, should have known better. Guy had the makings all the way. Anyway, as Tony goes on and on, Perry gets cut off by a roofing contractor. Rocket Roofers. Fitting name, right? Real quick check-in here. How slow do you have to be going to be cut off by a roofing contractor? At a red light, Perry rolls down the window and says, Oh, you don't signal? Note, his, oh, is high caliber. As seasoned, if not more, than a veteran and tenured member of the crew. But it's not enough he's summarily told to fuck off. At which point he tries to jump out of the car, like LeBron getting bonked on the head by Austin Rivers in the Western Conference bubble semifinals. But Tony holds him back. Was that new Tony? Or discreet Tony? Not wanting to draw unnecessary attention to himself. Perry apologizes, and like we've all been told at one point or other, He says his mom says he should count to 10 in situations like that. But he never remembers. Note, right there, Tony makes physical contact with his arms. Given what we know about how this episode plays out, a little opposition research, perhaps? Also, reach central here. But the combination of his physical strength with his relative mental weakness, as just demonstrated, gives Tony any advantage he might need against him in combat. In a way, he's already won. But so effective, right? Minimal words, just showing us this guy in the confines of a car. We're able to see right through his hulky facade and have fully incorporated him into our Sopranos experience. That's writing. Presentation. Cut to Melfi's office. First stop after a long trip. Fitting. Finally. Note, Tony's wearing a black shirt with a white stripe down the entire center. Symbolism? I saw that as the area of his incision covered in white, representing the new light new possibility, his hopefulness upon exiting the hospital with the enveloping darkness on either side, flanking the new chapter, a reminder of what he mostly is as opposed to what he could or might become moving forward. Dense, but we're back in the fucking therapist's chair. So why not? Dr. Melfi's happy to see him and he's happy to be there. He's like Kid Cudi, about to drop soundtrack to my life, a cappella. The first thing he asks for? A mercy fuck. Her smile shifts to stern. But an all-time classic moment between them. One we never forget. Because, truthfully, we've always kind of been wondering about it. Hoping for it. Or some combination of mixed feelings. I will say, the fact that nothing like that has ever happened, to this point, is quite special. There's a sanctity to their relationship, unlike any other on the show. And though the boundaries have moved as a as a gerrymanderer's pen, they have stayed inside the lines, but managed to keep us wondering all the same. And that's super effective and dynamic. There's a live, active, flowing river in the form of dialogue running through that office every time we're in it. Despite the stillness we see and feel. Anyway, he says he's kidding. But he's mostly kind of serious, right? Remember, no just means no right now. Could mean something else later. At least that's what we're told to think, right? She starts working a checklist asks how he's feeling. Not physically, but more emotionally. And he says he's happy to be alive. Still on that train. Said it so many times now, you almost forget that we're in the Sopranos universe. And The more times you keep hearing something like that, the more you realize how short-lived it's going to be. So short, in fact, that Melfi, who's controlling the levers here, brings up his uncle. Sore subject. No pun intended. And Tony's train starts to slow down. He still hasn't spoken to him and doesn't plan to. She turns to sleeping. Good. Then night terrors. Dreams. Tony, in response to what he perceives as fishing, Gloom is your business and business is good. Great line wonder if its origins came from Megadeth's debut album, Killing is My Business and Business is Good. She states the obvious, spells it out, you were shot by a member of your family. If that isn't the basis for a lot to talk about, what is, right? She mentions post-traumatic stress, of which all the above are symptoms. And Tony finally flips. I get it. My uncle tried to kill me for a second time, which I always took as foreshadowing that there might be a third. And then three strikes and I'm out, right? Wow. That statement says it all to some people. It's either a dead giveaway or a red herring. We'll never know. And that's one of the gifts of the show. But now, he's into this every day is a gift mindset. And he wants to keep it that way. So, she somewhat acquiesces. And I love that her acquiescence is conveyed in part through body language. Shifting her seat position. They pick up where things left off before he got shot. AJ. Things are worse, Tony laments. He tells her he flunked out of college. She brings up him leaving Seton Hall after a semester and a half, a little hip check of sorts to recalibrate his thinking. And he takes that on the chin with, okay, fine, but why can't he copy some of the good things about me? That's deep. Early in my parenting career, I went through a similar inventory of sorts, drew a line down a sheet of paper, and wrote good things about me on one side, bad things on the other. I read about this process in some book for some other application, but it occurred to me to employ it here for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was me reminding myself how many times I'd yelled at my parents about how I learned from them how not to be. Unsurprisingly, the list of flaws far outweighed my strengths. And that's even after giving myself a few mulligans for being my own worst enemy. But what am I doing, singing the lyrics to a lit song now? She asks if he has a job. Another hot-button item. Tony, blockbuster. First stop on the Shitbird Express. Shitbird is likely a military term coming out of the Marines. This is proof, right, from last episode that had Tony known about where AJ was planning to get a job, he might have intervened. Even a no-work job at the construction site was more dignified than Blockbuster, in his mind. At least he might pick up some street smarts there. She continues that maybe this new lease on life could be an opportunity for AJ to learn from Tony's mistakes. That's the operative word there. He recoils. Says he's a victim of domestic violence. Which, laughs aside, is partially true. Certainly, what Junior did could be classified as domestic violence. But also before that, Livia if anything, was a loaded gun. A semi-automatic weapon of verbal abuse and guilt and manipulation. Melfi, though, is less interested in what happened to Tony and more interested in his chosen profession and the guns and violence that are part and parcel of it. On the contrary, essentially she's saying working at Blockbuster is a step up a step in the right direction. Good point, but still, nah. Come on, man. We're talking about Blockbuster here. Poor Blockbuster, too, by the way. The greatest show on Earth is going at them hard. Guaranteed, whether documented in their financial disclosures or not, The Sopranos impacted their bottom line. In the final analysis of things, somewhere buried in one of those earnings calls, is a mention of The Sopranos Season 6 and its prognostication of their decline. Cut to the guys playing cards. Always thought this was interesting. Guys know Skip is back, locked and loaded, ready to start collecting envelopes. But are these guys out earning? Securing new revenue streams? Nah. Just playing cards. Christopher's rushing Polly to make a play. He's like George Clooney at the beginning of Michael Clayton or something. Polly's flummoxed, says Christopher's fucking with his concentration. The heat forces Polly to fold, and it looks like Chris took in a big pot. Note the way they look at each other, though. We haven't seen that since Pine Barrens. Recall an episode written and directed by the same duo as this episode here. And that look portends some kind of possible Western or Western-adjacent showdown. Maybe, just maybe. If nothing else, at least it's on your mind. Tony walks in. Guys jump up to greet him. Benny's first. Strategic? With hands together at his fingertips like Smithers and the Simpsons, he tells him he got his Bialy and coffee since he knew he was coming in. Then Paulie chimes in, a little less enthusiastically, likely still recovering from the mental anguish of learning his mother was a nun and his father was a deadbeat GI named Russ. But he still gets his moment. Polly always gets his moment. Look that Joe so it's hot. Ah. Ever wonder why coffee's called Joe? Well, I fucking did, and it turns out it coincided with the ban of alcohol on Navy ships during World War I. The Secretary of the Navy at the time, person who set the rule, was a guy called Josephus Daniels, Joe. So there you have it. Then Silvio calls T a malingerer. That's a slacker, or someone who feigns illness. This from a guy who got the coughs after getting an interim bump up the food chain. Cute. Chris comes up, also tentative, maybe wondering if his movie business plans sank in with Tony yet. T examines the Bialy, there are onions, and he, he can't eat those right now, probably on a strict diet until he's fully recovered. Polly snaps his fingers to get someone to scoop out. Scoop? Out, the Bialy. Three to four guys line up for the job. (laughs) The packaging of that expression and the body language of Polly is priceless. Just thinking about it brightens whatever room you're in. Then T jumps into business. Asks Vito about the municipal swimming pool. Have the bids started yet? This is a new project we haven't heard about until now. They're past the esplanade. Their construction business is expanding. Vito's on it. He's in touch with a guy named Deutsch on the Planning Commission. Got me wondering about municipal swimming pools generally. They've had a contentious and unfortunate past. Socially and racially. The construction craze for municipal pools started after World War I. Without getting too into the weeds, despite full desegregation, they are still a hotbed politically. The underlying concern, dating back over 100 years, was racial mixing. To curb racial mixing, even after legislation was passed, people would throw nails in mixed pools and even acid. Unreal. Only, it was real. Then, desegregation led to an influx of private pools, which in turn led to a defunding of municipal pools. Despite the 1964 Civil Rights Act that desegregated all public accommodations, local laws seldom enforced it or put a fee structure in place to essentially price out those they deemed unfit. There's a book about all this called Contested Waters, if you're curious. I listened to a great piece about it on Fresh Air. Back to the show and Vito's bid. I did a quick check on recent pool projects in my city, Los Angeles, to get a sense of what kind of money is at stake. It isn't peanuts. Currently in LA, there were six active projects across town over the past decade either rehabilitation of old facilities or complete teardowns and reconstructions of brand new aquatic centers. The average project budget was in the three to four million range. But what is this? Comparative civics class now. In a complete non sequitur, Chris, who's still counting as Hall, brings up Tony's antibiotics on the table. No spleen gene says he remembers his experience with those after his gunshot wound, at which point he and Tony show off their scars, their version of a pissing contest. Tony says his are better, basically on account that he had Tashlin, who we just now learned specialized in plastic surgery, do the outside. Sutures. Is a suture any different than a stitch? Colloquially, they're synonymous, but in medical terms, they're actually different things. Sutures are threads or strands used to close a wound. Stitches universally refers to the actual process of closing the wound. I know. I know. Always with the semantics. Tony continues, Plepler, the head trauma guy, emphasis on head, did the inside work. He's laying out his medical insurance benefits front and center and letting everyone know he's in a league of his own compared to these guys, best doctors, first patient to have the VAC, which stands for vacuum assisted closure. A better way to heal, he says. Why? What's the psychology here? Why is he feeling insecure in this moment? Especially to these guys. Maybe that life goes on seamlessly. No pun intended. Without him. He's mortal. Or perhaps damaged goods. In the eyes of these subordinates of his. You can totally see how that would weigh on someone. He's giving all these guys a lesson in healing. No doubt reciting, as he does so often, but seldom well, what he's heard from somebody else. This scene in particular, don't know why, but reminds me of the history PhD student Will Hunting went toe-to-toe with when he first met Skylar. The line Will tossed at him. Were you going to plagiarize the whole thing for us? you have any thoughts of your own in this matter? Or is that your thing? You come into a bar, you read some obscure passage, and then you pretend you pawn it off as your own, your own idea, just to impress some girls, embarrass my friend. <sighs> Love that movie so much. Tony mentions he was taking Ativan and Dilated which created intestinal blockage. This, of course, coincides with the creative choice to cut to Pauly. Only Pauly. It's as if the line were written just to be able to cut to Polly. Curiously, Silvio cuts him off mid-sentence, nudges him toward the coffee. Like, how's that for intestinal blockage? The big guy... Dante, is it? Offers to set his watch so Tony doesn't forget to take his meds. Nurse Betty over (laughs) here. A reference to the film of the same name from 2000, starring Renee Zellweger, Morgan Freeman, and Chris Rock. Speaking of Morgan Freeman, I just watched Seven Again. Why don't they make movies like that anymore? It's aged incredibly well. Dante says he cared for his mother round the clock when she had lupus, so he knows what's up. When he mentions lifting her in and out of the tub, Polly flips. Man's trying to eat! No doubt, recalling mentally the visual of his mother on the bed last episode. <laughs> the, the varicose veins. Dante continues, In another life, I might have got into healthcare. Worthy point to delve into. These guys, man, and their wistful mentions of in another life. Vanilla Sky over here. But Sill's not feeling him or any of this shit. He's trying to play cards. Echoing Tony once upon a time. What's with all this morbid shit? But Tony's impressed Dom can lift a grown person in and out of a tub. He laments losing muscle mass instead of fat during his hospital stay. He's clearly fixated on muscles at this point. Chris asks Tony if he's in. The game's five-card call. Chris wonders why they'd play any other. He's just won three pots. Note, five-card is considered the easiest and simplest form of poker. Not sure if there was a commentary there or not. Just putting it on the table. Tony gives him a look like he appreciates this moment. Back to his version of the regularness of life. The look is a telltale sign, though. That all this, whatever this is, will be short-lived. Worth noting, the entire tenor of this scene is dark. This table With some of these folks, and now some new ones, before, felt like the Last Supper. I even recall us talking about it once. The pacing and the moody lighting here throws you a bit. Tony's feeling his way back. He's kind of foggy. And they conveyed that fogginess so well. It put that residue on us. What's the word? Discomfort. And we cut from his crew, his safe place, relatively speaking, to Junior, anything but. Hands clasped in a judge's chambers alongside his lawyer and the prosecutor, Castleman. The government's neuropsychologist finds evidence of dementia. Castleman Clarifies. Evidence consistent with dementia. Super lawyerly. Hanging on every word like that. The recommendation, nevertheless, is that he be sent to a prison psychiatric facility for further evaluation. This as Junior fidgets and stares at a box of tic tacs. Made me wonder if he was recalling a tic tac truck heist. Back in his day. Importantly, he's not selling it anymore. This is real. And an interesting place for these questions. Do we feel sorry for him? Do we care? Are we supposed to? Regardless, what was once a legal theory or scheme is now very real. His counsel wants better provisions than a public. Facility. Felt a hint of the history of municipal pools here. Castleman offers up a resort in Antigua. Trivago over here. Always with the scenarios. Also recall a reference to Antigua back in Test Dream, Valentina's dream destination before setting fire to herself. In one last successful plea by his lawyer, You want him to get better so you can put him on trial? Let him get better. Feels a lot like that Lori Laughlin sentencing that just went down. The whole preferential treatment thing. Absolutely, profoundly bizarre. Speaking of prison sentences and preferential treatment, or lack thereof, cut to Johnny Sack. Complaining about seating arrangements. Uncle Angelo having to sit next to a Haitian? Note, both his daughters are smoking. With the control and display like they've been doing it for years, too. Classic detail. Never really paid that close attention to it until now. Makes the saga of the sacks so much better. Then, Johnny sacked to his wife, I thought you were on top of this he cracks jokes to her face and he doesn't even realize it. How immaculate is that? She tells him there are 400 people on the list. She's got other things on her mind. Contradictory statements in that if there were 400 people on any list, that would be top of fucking mind. His response, And I'm idling away the hours. everybody in the room hears. The King of New York! But seriously, isn't that definitionally what doing time is all about? Idling away the hours? He's not exactly carving up the literary canon over here. Or getting jacked, for that matter. We haven't even seen him peruse the latest edition of GQ, for Christ's sakes. Jump the gun there a little bit, but wait for it. It's coming. The sisters bicker over the size of the wedding. Another opportune time to insert Richie, who said, "Teach his own. Recall the Baroque detail of him holding up a fork with egg yolk dripping off it. Allegra's fiancé attempts to console her, while Catherine is condemned for her commentary. After all, didn't she get the memo? What's this, the fucking UN now? Johnny Sack apologizes for losing his stack, that expression. Then he assures the troops, we're going to get through this as a family. Dignified. Proud. Key words that will prove ironic as this episode progresses. Despite all the persecution and roadblocks, will he maintain his dignity and pride when faced with an actual roadblock at the end of Allegra's wedding? We'll see in a moment. But what a great writing cue to tee that up. Then, a nice little moment, he includes the groom, Eric, in that circle. The family circle, that is. But Eric looks back at him unreassuringly, to my mind. He says, thank you, John. A mistake almost as big as Finn's, paying for dinner with Tony at the table. Thank you who? Thank you. Long pause. Dad. As in, does me calling you dad implicate me in your shitstorm the likes of which I never want to see? I fully realize I'm getting cute with the Johnny Sackisms this episode, but this is what nearing the end looks like. An amalgamation and remembrance of things past. Johnny wants everybody to eat up, be healthy, fatherly advice, but Catherine, the gauntest of the bunch, flips at the subject of food. This as we cut to a high shot of Satrial's smiling, suckling pig. Guys are still playing cards. And Silvio's drinking a Yoohoo, a brand that originated in New Jersey, and is still as unhealthy and laden with suspicious ingredients as ever, but addictively delicious, no doubt. One thing about those kinds of drinks I've never dared to challenge is the shake-first instruction. It's very prominently displayed on the bottle artwork. Oftentimes, right next to the logo. Like Billy Joel, I often go to extremes. And I always interpret that instruction as, if you don't shake it, you die. Vito's ahead this round. Says he's got a boat. Tens over jacks. Means he got a full house. That's three cards of one rank and two cards of another. I know. World Series of Poker over here. But Chris's winning streak is over. And I wondered if that was a bit of deeply-seated fortune-telling. Tony says he's out. Silvio asks, bankers' hours? That expression goes all the way back to the 1800s and has to do with the relatively short working day enjoyed by bankers. Gotta say, Living in L.A. as long as I have? I feel like those hours apply to a whole lot more than just bankers. T calls out for penne arrabbiata. Perry. An expression used in part because of Perry's anger in the car earlier. It's inspired by the pasta dish pene al On account of his getting angry while driving earlier. The Italian word for anger is arrabbiato. Hope I got that pronunciation at least partially right. Before exiting, Tony's notified that Phil Leotardo's here to see him. Not so fast, Tony. They exchange pleasantries. How's the labanza, or belly? Phil to the group. You guys letting him win? Saw that as a thinly veiled dig on both sides of the ledger, Phil's there to bend his ear. A lot of expressions this episode. We learn Johnny wants a favor. The mayor of Munchkinland, that's Rusty. The Munchkinland reference, of course, goes back to the land of Oz, I believe the origin of the yellow brick road, which gets you thinking, is Rusty a road to somewhere? Whether he is or isn't, John wants him taken out. Says he might try to find another puppet like little Carmine. Needs to nip this in the bud. Tony asks, why him? And we're thinking the same thing too. They've got more buttons than his grandmother's corsets, he says. Gotta say, not my favorite line. But it's grown on me. I went through a few different machinations of what might fit better or sound better or work better, and then quickly realized how ill-equipped I was. But I think the overriding issue I had was something akin to, oh, what are we doing knowing the pertinent particulars of grandmother's corsets now? Phil says John wants to point it away from the family. But again, why put the onus on T? Why point it in his direction? The heat. I never understood that. For now, T says no. Time to set some limits. And Phil's really is like the Night King, moments before descending his entire army down on Jon Snow in Hardhome. He exits the frame saying, Be well, but not before staring up at him with his own version of Manson lamps. That be well wasn't a well-wish, it was a threat. Tony seemingly realizes that immediately and his brain starts cranking. Later at home, he labors up the stairs, Carm intercepts him, and they enjoy a moment together snuggling in bed for a few. The regularness of life moments we all capture from time to time amidst the ongoing bullshit. And then we cut to the guys enjoying their moment together with some strippers. Two guys are there to see Chris, Middle Eastern-looking fellas. Recall the very kind Agent Harris asked to be notified about. Chris, who was tentative with the stripper to begin with, sprouts up to greet them. Wonders where the rest of the 40 thieves are. Of course, a reference to Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves the classic folktale from the 1001 Nights series. It's where the expression open sesame comes from. Chris asks if they got it, thinking he meant money. Says it was a good week, 120 credit card numbers plus the three-digit security codes. Chris says, don't leave home without it. American Express over here, reference to their once ad campaign before that even greater one with De Niro after 9-11. After a language miscommunication, they hand over some dates for Tony. They send their best. But Chris is indifferent. In Islam, dates are a big deal. A sacred fruit during Ramadan. You're supposed to break fast with them, and they symbolize abundance, power, and faith. Speaking of abundance and power, As Chris takes a call, they low-key ask for some leads on Tech 9 semi-automatics with extended magazines. Tech is short for the company that makes that line of gun. Intratech. Notably, it was the gun used during the Columbine school shooting a few years earlier. They say it's to quell a family problem. A former brother-in-law who failed to fall in line. For that, I'd say disproportionate is an understatement. Regardless, they wait for Chris's answer as he winds down a phone call by watching the talent in the room as we cut to footsteps coming down the driveway. Gotta say, nice seed planting there, though. An off-the-cuff major ammunition transaction. No big deal. Not in this world. Almost a boring request, even. This as we casually cut to, not Tony, but Carmella heading down the driveway to pick up the paper, who, recall, handled an equally devastating semi-automatic weapon in the pilot episode. Symmetry. But finally, we're in this similar, familiar environment. Some things are back to normal, albeit with slight variance. She grabs the paper, and the camera creates that tension we've come to expect from this scene. Is someone watching? She opens it to find Junior on the cover of the New Jersey section. Headline reads: "Cushy Psych Lockup for Don Squirrel Leone." Of course, a mocking play on Don Corleone. Note: If this were Chris, he'd be pissed he wasn't on. The front page. Anyway, Roe had alerted her to it. Always got an eye out, that one. Carmelo throws that section of the paper in the trash and buries it. Quite well, actually. All those reps with the bird feed and all. With that, we slow fade to Johnny Sack in his cell. Doing what he does better than any human on planet Earth. blow smoke. He's greeted by his lawyer, carrying another suit, and two U.S. Marshals. U.S. Marshals, real quick, are like policemen for the federal government. Among their duties, they're the enforcers for the federal courts. To go vintage NHL on you guys, they're like the Detroit Red Wings' Bob Probert. They explain they have full discretion. They can elect to bring him back early should he misbehave. To which my thought always was, define misbehave. Johnny's concerned about the shoes, patent leather. The lawyer pleads, see what I did there? It's a tuxedo, the two go hand in hand. But Johnny's not having it. Have you read an issue of GQ in the past three or four years? To which I say, thanks to that line, I've been a proud subscriber ever since. With respect to patent leather, I visited GQ ahead of this to get the current verdict on tuxedo conventions. And to Johnny Sack's credit, Guy was on trend and continues to be. The following is GQ's specific instruction: Quote, skip those shiny tuck shoes and stick with well-polished black lace-ups instead, unquote. My addendum, and if you can, go with the Bruno Moglis over here. Cut to Tony counting cash on the kitchen table. Note this after he watched Chris count cash earlier. And since they're going tit for tat this episode, only makes sense. Carmela's in disbelief that Allegra's getting married. Tony calls her a 50-pound bundle of joy. I thought it was interesting that Meadow found that joke amusing as opposed to offensive. Tony looks forward to when Meadow gets married. Note her forlorn look. Almost like she just broke up with somebody. Then, we see that Carm keeps a log on how much cash they're giving for the wedding. Meadow finds that unsentimental, among other things. Carm explains it's the way of the world, so they can know if they stiff us later on. Super relatable. And though my experience wasn't quite so well documented and recorded, the cultural dynamic I experienced is very similar. Tony brings up Finn and when they're getting married. But she shuts it down. She doesn't have the same enthusiasm as she once did about that whole thing. Something happened. I thought so in this moment at least. Tony explains this new urgency he has is because of what happened to him. Holding her kids on his lap is very important to him all of a sudden. That makes her leave the frame. Carm gives him a loving smile and we cut to church bells ringing. The sound of bells carrying over from last episode. This specific church is in Cobble Hill in Brooklyn. There's a queue of people waiting to get in, perturbed. Also, the detail here. The sense of place. The way the shot starts looking up at the steeple and the trees and then descends down to the queue. The sounds, the indistinct chatter, the air. The show has the uncanny ability to pull us into the frame, unlike anything else I've seen. It's a fucking immersive experience. All this AR, VR now. We had that shit in the form of this show decades ago. The reason for the queue, we realize, is is a police barricade or checkpoint, to which my immediate reaction was, oh, whatever happened to the separation of church and state? Then a government-issued suburban rolls up, cuts through the crowd. Johnny Sack is pulled out in cuffs, real dignified-like. And we can now hear the unrelenting crowd murmur their barbs. Their judgment. This as they're about to enjoy the endless spread of food and entertainment on his dime. Next, we see Polly getting interrogated about his personal items. He calls his vial of cologne nitroglycerin. That is, among other things, a precursor to gunpowder. Inside the church, everybody's taken their seats. Tony has an opinion about the security in the form of a Bin Laden reference. Phil tells him the government made Johnny pay for all this. And Meadow flips. The government did that? Begs the question. Can the government do that? Well, let's answer a question with a question. Did the judge have to release him in the first place? Tony's hot and tired. Carmela's helping him along, says he's almost there. This as he sets off the metal detector. My initial thought, would he actually carry anything here? They scan him, ask him to remove his shoes, at which point we see Finn and Chris, who's got a new girl in his arm. Good positioning, as luck would have it, because Tony collapses. As Phil looks on. disgusted. That'll make more sense in a sec. Finn and Chris breathe real heavy, holding Tony up. Two people drop at this wedding. Drum roll for the next one. Dante brings him some water. This fucking guy. Sets alerts on his watch, sanctioned or not. Finn leaves to retrieve a damp paper towel. A dental school pro tip, perhaps. Then, Dante removes his shoes. No exceptions will be made, though Meadow tried. And Tony looks on as everybody watches. At which point the camera moves up so that we feel what he's feeling. The same degree of anxiety and overwhelmingness. Perfectly executed. Moments later, the couple exchanges vows. Chris makes jokes to Carlo. Isn't Allegra a cold medicine? He's told it means happiness in Italian by Pauli, who's behind them. But also, subtly, he performs a malaprop of sorts by mischaracterizing Allegra. It's an allergy medicine, not a cold one. Note the guy to Pauli's left looks like Fredo Corleone, only with a more substantial diet. Some of you dear listeners have analogized Christopher to Fredo, and I point this out here to give a little credence to that theory, since the two are juxtaposed here in the same frame for a beat. We see Vito and his wife holding hands. We see her ring, or he sees her ring, more rather. We see her relative peace and enjoyment of the moment, remembering her nuptials, perhaps. And then we see Vito's face. The face of a man with a secret. Cut to the reception. It opens on an overhead shot of a fountain. I wonder if that fountain was procured at Fountains of Wayne. Remember from another toothpick. We see a bunch of people marching up the stairs in a not-too-dissimilar fashion to the way Adriana and Christopher did at Massive Genius' house. Rusty shows up, tentatively, Carmella's impressed with the presentation of the event, the amount of money they must have spent. More on that in a minute. Tony explains, you gotta either do this or give it to the feds in the asset seizure. Sound logic. AJ's blown away by the seafood buffet. Can't help but think of Junior in that moment. His date, however, isn't. She doesn't eat fish. The toxins. Was that? is that still a thing? Turns out it is, actually. And it's becoming a bigger deal. A recent Harvard study showed that levels of methylmercury in fish such as cod, tuna, and swordfish are on the rise. And the primary reason? Climate change. How? Well, warmer water makes fish expend more energy to swim. That means they have to eat more smaller fish to sustain that activity, which results in a higher intake and accumulation of methylmercury, which, over time, finds its way into our bodies when we consume fish. The way I just described this, it might as well have been AJ's date because it would no doubt generate the same response. The cut to Tony, staring at her. What's he thinking? This fucking girl? Kids these days? Then Dante, magically, or perhaps not so magically at this point, brings drinks for all, showing his true other life potential. Guy invented the iWatch before Apple. Vito comes up, greets the family, then locks on to Finn. All handsome in his Calvin Klein. How'd he know that? Did Vito study abroad on Savile Row one summer? Brings up the grandkids they'll one day make. This as both look down. Again, something's off. Vito wants a word with Tony even at a wedding, a place of leisure, always on that grind. Vito says Deutsch, the planning commission guy, is also a degenerate horse player. They're speaking in code. Tony asks if he'll play ball. And Vito says he's fucking Joe DiMaggio, the Yankee legend, who of course was known to have close ties to the mob during and after his playing career. Then he hands him an envelope from Weehawken. That's a part of New Jersey right around the Lincoln Tunnel. Weehawken no doubt holds the claim of one of the best views on planet Earth. A panorama of New York City from the George Washington Bridge all the way down to the Verrazano. Also, a point of origin for the likes of Fred Astaire, who is a reminder, of course, of Feech, and a musical hero of mine, Thelonious Monk. Vito waves to the group and leaves. Cut to Carmela who smiles patronizingly. Recall her doubts of him last episode. That cut to her was a great reminder. Did Tony remember though? The party goes on. There's singing, there's dancing. A semi-decent version of Ain't That a Kick in the Head. Of course, immortalized by Dean Martin, who sang it first. Johnny Sack comes up to Tony and Carmella, at which point Tony attempts to loop in AJ, whom he refers to as Guguts, slang for zucchini. Says, you want an event plan? Look at this. Maybe Johnny Sack might be able to help set him up with the higher-ups at Leonard's. AJ, of course, wonders where he gets this shit from. And John is shocked at the mouth on this kid. But seriously, Tony's even down with event planning over a gig at Blockbuster. He's really got a vendetta for that once cathedral of mine and so many others. Just not to work out, of course. John and Tony share a moment. Reminds us he couldn't visit T in the hospital for obvious reasons. Says he was devastated when he found out. No on-screen evidence to the contrary. So we can buy that. Tony shrugs it off, says, that's life. Getting shot by your uncle. Simple, run-of-the-mill chalk up to, that's life. Sure. Then Tony wonders about the cost of this shindig. Not including the honeymoon? 425K. Adjusting for inflation, Tony's looking at half a rock. Got me curious about wedding economics generally. The average cost of a wedding in America at last measure was around 35,000. Whereas the average cost of immigrant weddings, Italians, Indians, skews much higher. In many instances, five, six, 700K. Johnny Sack brings up Phil. Interesting, right? Because that means Phil didn't give him Tony's full answer. Very strategic. Doubtful that Johnny would hold his card so tight if he knew. But who am I, Richard Turner now? Tony notices the marshals behind him and immediately changes the subject. Always looking, right? Till he's not. The last time these two talked face-to-face, federal agents crept up behind Johnny Sack, too. Nice symmetry there. And it's nice to see that Tony's radar hasn't suffered much since getting shot. The two of them go over to say hello to Johnny Sack's dad. The real actor was an uncle of Steve Buscemi's, I believe. Tony says he's going to talk to Johnny, but make it seem like he's talking to his dad and the other company at the table. A pro tip for all of us who plan to discuss incriminating conspiracies at a wedding reception. Tony says he can't do it. Again, for all the reasons enumerated earlier. This as one of the U.S. Marshals walks into the frame. Johnny Sachs says, this fucking prick. Ostensibly for Rusty, but it could also apply to the marshal. Incredibly efficient writing. Tony says, in code, to find someone else. But Johnny explains, and this is key, his power isn't solidified. Fascinating revelation. When Carmine died, Rusty could have been boss. Even more, John says he should have been but he didn't want the responsibility. Didn't have the balls. Johnny calls him a cancer and says he can't let it spread. Tony then takes an opportunity to remind Johnny Sack that he advised him of the same thing. Being boss isn't all it's cracked up to be. But it's too late for that now. Then why say it, Tony? And Johnny's look What? You can have a taste, but I can't? Interesting that all this is amidst the backdrop of a festive wedding. Just like in one. When was the last time we saw a wedding of this magnitude on the show? Was it when the guys had to do spring cleaning back in The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti, season one? Also the one when Pauly approached Carmine? who had no clue who he was. But, if I recall correctly, that wedding wasn't nearly as opulent. The old folks at the table start bickering while Tony and Johnny Sack try to get a word in edgewise. Johnny's dad is concerned about Aunt Louise eating a pepper. What? That pepper have Junior's name on it? Then Johnny practically begs, but maintains the veneer of dignity for now. Says his captains will lose faith in him if he backs down on the move against Rusty. Tony says, and I think rightfully, I take the risk and end up in the same cell as you? Like, Johnny, how can you even ask this? But John's undeterred. He appeals to emotion. There's that appeal to emotion again. It's my daughter's. Wedding, which by the way, we've heard before across TV and film. I was at your wedding. You were in my wedding, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the fuck's that really got to do with anything? Ever. John's whole thing is the way things are, he doesn't know if he'll be around for Catherine's wedding. He's playing the same card on Tony that Tony played on Meadow moments ago. These guys operate from the same user manual in more ways than one. Then, do me this favor, Tony, as the saxophone solo of Ain't That a Kick in the Head plays. Love that solo. And that was it. Tony says he'll take care of it. Then John, in a rather ungrateful way, the kind of way that Larry David would say is incommensurate with the gesture, says he won't forget it. Tony excuses himself, and we're left wondering, what's this gonna cost Johnny? Cut to the introduction of Mr. and Mrs. Eric De Benedetto coming out to a terrible rendition of At Last. If you're going to do that song, you got to bring it. Like Omar said in The Wire, you come at the king, you best not miss. The same applies to Etta James. Swapping out king for queen, of course. Note, Meadow and Finn look at each other. There's tension and urgency. Did they talk about what Tony told Meadow earlier, I wondered? Tony asks Carm to dance. Nice moment for them. Genuine. Without agenda on either side. After a beat, they clasp hands on the lyric, I found a dream. Nice touch. We see Ro dancing with Dante. Wait. He had time to program that into his watch too? John dancing with Jenny. Vito Dancing with his wife. But could not be more distant? The space between them. Like Dave Matthews once said. Is the space they'll fill with time. His general discomfort is on a level we've never seen. The veto dam that showed cracks at the job site last season. Is finally starting to buckle cut from a prisoner in his own marriage to an actual prisoner, Junior. He's entering his new private psychiatric facility. We get a look at the types of patients there, all walks of life and disposition. He gets frisked, says he's taken Coumadin when asked. That's a blood thinner. Recall for his past mini-strokes. Like the killer's, His lawyer's looking for Mr. Brightside. There's a tree outside the window. How's that for starters? Heck, that he's even got a window in the first place, some might say is a big deal. We hear whistles in the background, like that of a drill sergeant or a coach on one of those varsity fields Junior had such high aspirations for Tony to be on. The lawyer, less than happy to be there, speaks loudly trying to crack through Junior's skull, make sure he understands. Whatever happened to the oath of zealously defending and advocating for your client? Junior says he didn't do it. Why would he shoot his own nephew? Great question, right? Now, this is stating the obvious, but that he once conspired to do as much is a pretty good place to start. He says the gun was on the fritz. Because of this show and that line in this moment, I say on the fritz all the time. It's actually become a parenting device. Different context than with a gun and all, shooting a family member and such. But I've gotten real mileage with that expression. Remains to be seen what the long-term effects will look like, but real mileage nonetheless. If he did it, he said, the gun malfunctioned. He could have cleaned it. Cleaning a gun. What does that entail and why is it important? Spontaneous discharges? Sticky bullets? Well, exactly that and more. The term of art in that world is called fouling. While My kind of fouling is more relegated to the NBA variety. Junior's logic makes sense. But you gotta doubt that he's sitting around in between switching the channels, cleaning out old bullet residue. Also, this moment reminds me of the late, great Chris Cornell and his song, Cleaning My Gun. That song, of course, is a metaphor for taking yourself out or thinking about it. But it's a powerful track. Acoustic live version, if I recall correctly. Just his voice versus the intense strums of his guitar. And it's especially sad when you realize it forecasted his own death by suicide a few years later. (laughs) Cut to John and Allegra dancing together. Father and daughter. Nice moment for John. The song, a wedding staple, Daddy's Little Girl. This as Tony looks at Meadow. Then, cut to Tony and Chris talking about Rusty over an instrumental version of Unchained Melody. The Righteous Brothers, or more appropriately here, the Righteous Cousins, have different views on how to handle Johnny's request. Tony wants to bring in someone from Naples. A second coming of Furio. Chris isn't feeling that. This is his thing. His expertise. He wants to work. Or so it seems. But Tony wants to insulate himself. To which Chris says, Farming it out is a pussy-ass maneuver. Crazy thing, though. Did anybody ask him? From across the room, Carm yells about the Rolatini. At first, I thought that was medication he was supposed to take on the hour or some shit. In which case, where the fuck was Dante? But no. That's eggplant. It's a dish. Best served warm. See what I did there? Chris says they should do it maintain control or have New York fucking do it their damn selves. Tony says he can't refuse a man's request. And Chris, the new film impresario over here, likens it to the movies specifically to one that you can't refuse a man's request on his daughter's wedding day. But Tony correctly asserts that it's the other way around. I should be asking him for something that he can't refuse. But Chris keeps weighing in. At which point, Tony finally tells him he didn't ask what he fucking thinks. And that's that. Over at Vito's table, he grabs his coat and tells everybody he's got to go. The crab cakes got to him. Which, by the way, last time I checked, those weren't a part of Atkins. We see Vito Jr. and his daughter Francesca for the first time and Marie and Vito all leave Phil and his wife hanging. Awkward, but a great setup for what's coming. Cut to the bride and groom cutting the cake. Note, all the elements of a wedding taking place while a murder conspiracy is hatched and plotted out. Brilliant. Also note, since Chris referenced one and all, Don Corleone's wedding for Connie versus this? It's like people still comparing Kawhi Leonard to LeBron James. Sadly, John's informed he's got 20 minutes. No exceptions. Moments later, the couple comes outside to meet the remaining crowd and head off in matrimonial harmony. John greets Allegra halfway down the threshold. Note the wedding hall they're at is a place called Leonard's, a real place in Great Neck, just beyond the U.S. Tennis Center in Flushing Meadows. Everybody's clapping and cheering. Allegra tells her mom she came this close to hitting her goal. That was for her diet, we know. But it's kind of ironic given what's just about to happen. They are this close to having this wedding go off without a hitch. Sidebar, at which point we see a guy behind Ginny Sack that looks to be a young Elon Musk. As they enter the car to take them to the airport, Phil shouts out, Say hi to Don Ho, a reference to the Hawaiian singer, and of course a hint that they're headed to Hawaii. And if we're cracking jokes over here, no doubt the Big Island. But as their car pulls away, It's met by a Suburban with sirens. Out come a handful of guys. They cuff Johnny. Everybody shouts in protest as John weeps uncontrollably. This super long pause is intentional because the look on Phil's face when he sees that. That look alone was 13 pages worth of script. As John walks away, Jenny faints. There's that second person who collapsed at this wedding. Note exactly 19 people, I counted, reach out to try and catch her. Yet we still hear a thud so loud our TVs collectively shake. Every time. Even her sound effects are in on the joke. At this point, Phil's mouth is a gape. Approximately 2.5 pages worth of scripting. It's that impactful. Also worth pointing out, he's standing next to the hairdo. As if the blonde hair wasn't enough. He's also got on a pink shirt, white collar, and Native American-looking tie. Cut to Phil wasting no fucking time at all. His estimation of John Sacramoni as a man just fucking plummeted. Love that so much. The way the camera races around him and then orbits his head, fucking clinical. Tony, much more charitable at present time, says to cut him a break. Mr. Empathy over here, right? But Phil takes the basketball from Tony and fucking alley-oops it to himself. To cry like a woman? It's a fucking disgrace. Has anybody ever before or since said fucking disgrace better than Phil fucking Leotardo? Go ahead and look. I'll wait. Then, Pauly goes Disney. His coach turned into a pumpkin. Note, Carlo Gervaisi didn't even crack a smile. He had no fucking clue what Paulie was talking about. You think that guy watched Cinderella? But again, Phil, sharp as a fucking whip, even Cinderella didn't cry. Tony tries to hold court. Says when it comes to daughters, all bets are off. Phil grabs that rebound too. Says if they can make him cry, what the fuck else can they make him do? In the can, that is. What he's talking about. Phil's taking leadership of the team right here. Asserting himself. At least communicating outwardly That he never did any such fucking thing while in the can. All 20 fucking years. Chris agrees. Rankling Tony. Chris got a lot of opinions these days. Then a passerby commiserates over what just happened to John. And Phil. Dutifully. Toes the line. Emotional man. Loves his daughter. Guy is a knack for retail politics. Kissing babies, shaking hands, stump speeches, the whole lot. Cut to an old film. We hear the dialogue, I want to give you a home, take care of you, love you. The movie's called Imitation of Life and came out in 1959. A fitting name for this particular storyline. It's Vito's wife, Marie, curled up on the couch with a cup of tea. And right there is when you sense something's afoot. Something in their storyline is about to advance. We've seen her now too many times in one episode. Out comes Vito, says he's got to go make some collections. She's miffed they couldn't stay at the wedding longer and also doubtful that that's what he's actually doing so late at night. An awkward moment between them, but we get a sense of what's coming, if it wasn't obvious already. Cut to Carm, dressed for bed. Key lime pie over here, with that outfit. She climbs in the bed next to Tony, and they both stare at the ceiling for a beat, before she goes into how lucky they are. House. Kids. Hospital recovery. Jail. Tony quickly shunts all of it, You make your own luck in life. You make your own luck in life. Guy's a book of aphorisms these days. Her eyes flutter, and we cut to John. In his cell, changing into his prison jumper. We see him get escorted back to his primary cell. The paces, the silence, the claustrophobia. It's all there. We get the sense that Johnny Sack's time is winding down. He's powerless on the inside. More so because we realize, by his own admission, no less, that he never consolidated his power. He ran out of time, or didn't have enough, or had too much competition. All of the above. Also makes you wonder if he's thinking right there at that moment when the cell is closing next to him as he sits down, whether or not he's taking in what Tony said about being boss. Maybe this whole crisis could have been averted had he stayed comfortably at number two. The guy already had the house, the car, the kids were safe and secure. Everything was good. Great, even. But As Nas reminds us, the the if-I-ruled-the-world syndrome is real. Also remember Littlefinger and Cersei in Game of Thrones. He says to her, knowledge is power. To which she devastatingly, truthfully, and game-changingly counters after ordering her guards to do everything she commanded, however whimsical, and they did so on a dime. Power is power. She's right. And Johnny Sack, for the first time, realizes he doesn't have any. Who in his crew could he get to fall in line like that? Phil's not even giving him complete debriefings anymore. Cut to a gay club. We see a couple of guys moving through the crowd. Guys we've never seen before. They head to the bar. They're there to collect from the bartender. Note the music in the background is a track from one of my favorite DJ duos. Deep Dish. Might have even talked about them already. I can't remember. I could, should, and might do an entire pod on just them and that era of music they were a part of. The track's called Flashing for Money. Dubfire and Sharam, the individual components of Deep Dish, had a legendary run on the club scene, then split up, had solo careers, and had a few instances of brief reunions. Timeless mixes, music, remixes, and just overall music era. And prepping for this, I just saw they did an essential mix as recently as 2014, which I plan on listening to while mixing this episode for you guys. While waiting, the two guys convey to each other how uncomfortable they are in that space, in that moment. But hey, money is green, no matter whose pocket it's coming out of. Then, the moment we've been waiting for. Well, some have been waiting for. It's revealed that Vito's dancing with a guy. They're both in their respective get-ups, one the dominator and one the dominatee. They're flirting, they kiss, and the Vito transformation is complete in terms of what we know of him on screen, officially speaking. The two guys bump into Vito and we see they all know each other. Guys call him out by name. Sal, in particular, can't believe his eyes. Vito explains he's just joking around. You're a fucking fag. Watch it, buddy. You fucking watch it, cupcake. Guys, come on, it's okay. You think so? Sal, please, it's a fucking joke. Right, sure. Thinking it would be enough and all would be forgotten, Vito yells, don't say nothing as they storm out. But if this were today, Sal would have already IG-lived that shit. Vito's brief romance with his new friend is over. No drink. He's panicking. Cut to him at home, pulling a gun out of his bedroom drawer. His wife wakes, tells her to go to sleep. He's going to take a shower. Note, he catches a glance at his two kids in the picture frame before leaving the bedroom, before leaving the state, or at least starting to. We cut to the Maple Shade Motel, a place in Ramsey off Route 17, the same stretch as the Bing. We hear the same song, a duatly chosen for this moment, gotta say, The Three Bells. Same song we heard Jason Barone sculling to an episode ago. Vito pulls up to room 16, enters, throws his bag down, drops his keys on the table. Cigarette snugly tucked away in the corner of his mouth. Guy's about to embark on his own western. Sets his piece down on the nightstand. Does he make it out the other side? Does he reach his personal Valhalla? And deep cut here, does cousin Brian help him? Proverbially speaking, chopper him out, like he did for Tony and Eloise. He calls Sill's house. Gabby answers, hands it to Sill casually, like they get calls like this all the time. What do you know? What do you say? Sill lets us know it's three o'clock. fucking clock. Vito says he's just checking in. Awkward, but Sill doesn't make anything of it. Not yet, at least. But that time, 3 o'clock, is Vito's time up? We see a long cut to the gun next to an ashtray. Is he about to kill himself? Cleaning his gun? Is he going to use it on Sal and his associate? Why didn't he already? Why didn't he just track them down and take them out that night? How many guys in the crew can you imagine would have done just that were the roles reversed? We stay on his face long enough with the smoke from the cigarette, the highway noise in the distance, to wonder with him. How long is this self-imposed lamb going to last? What's the play? And is he smart enough Savvy enough. Boss enough. To play it. Cut to Tony at Melfi's. Complaining about the wedding security. Says falling down made him look weak. If people think you're weak, they see an opportunity. Again, echoing Johnny Sack. Though he was talking to Phil at the time. You know, that thing about wearing contacts instead of glasses in a courtroom. Tony continues, they're my friends, but they're also fucking jackals. A unique characteristic of the jackal is their tendency to hunt cooperatively. Wonder if that's what T meant, that they would descend upon him as a group if the moment arose. Melfi's word for them alpha male. A slow burn, pop-culturalized term after its appearance in Aldous Huxley's 1984. But they're not all entirely alphas. Alphas are generally leaders. Most of these guys, in fact, all of these guys, with the exception of Tony, are consummate followers. Which makes me wonder if she knew that and said it anyway as a way to trigger something in Tony to catalyze him out of the rut he's in the more I think about it I really actually think that was a big part of it intentional strategically placed pandering where he's thinking in his head they're not alpha I'm fucking alpha Similar reaction to the one he had when he overheard the conversation with Deluxe and his manager. Ultimately doing exactly what she wants him to do in a way that allows him to arrive at the conclusion on his own. Namely, to act as if. He brings up the subtle questioning of his judgments that have been going on. Primarily what we saw with Christopher, which clearly got under his skin so much so that he's attempting to deconstruct it in therapy. Her response is that when the cat's away, bad habits set in. This statement, to my delight, invites a reference to cats and vanilla sky, which I'll get to share with you guys at the end. Tony says, Perfect world? Let them think whatever the fuck they want. He's right. Why react? Also recall, he's not running a fucking popularity contest. Melfi continues, act as if. Gotta say, words to live by, especially from a mental health perspective. To drive the point home and make sure it crystallizes in Tony, act as if you're not feeling vulnerable. You're the same old Anthony strong, decisive. Uh Uh-oh. She's sure she wants to be given this kind of advice to him right now? Is this really wise? Who is going to have to pay for this advice, right? But she's not done. Her curtain call, and one of my favorites... People see only what you allow them to see. Boom. To which he says he's been thinking the same thing. Thanks for the advice. Yep. Somebody's about to pay for this. Cut to Bobby playing basketball outside Satriales. Bobby and it looks like Jason Molinaro. Absolutely love that they have a chain net outside Satriales. I had one of those once. And it's one of the best, most satisfying inventions ever in the history of sport. Anyway, great camera angle as it moves to reveal Paulie getting in a little tanning action. Does he actually carry that shit in the trunk of his car? That reflector thingy? Tony pulls up with Perry, gets out, sizes everybody up, sees Chris and Polly lounging outside. And then watches as Bobby dunks the basketball. Couple things there. Bobby dunked a fucking basketball? Definitely wasn't 10 feet for starters. Also, Bam Adebayo would have eaten the ball and three quarters of Bobby's arm if he were in front of that rim. Congratulations to him and the Miami Heat for making it to the NBA Finals, by the way. And the choice to slow motion him Reveal his physicality makes you wonder if he's going to be Tony's target after that sit down with Melfi. While on the subject of Bobby's game, he did have a decent post up move, perhaps a skill he acquired backing Lionel sets into his garage for assembly. Bobby asks T how he's doing, and T asks him his weight these days. He says 265. If you recall, that's less than what Tony weighed the night he got shot. He was a couple notches above 280, if I'm remembering correctly. Then T looks at Paulie's arms, the same way patrons check out the cuts of meat inside Satrielles. At which point we cut to the Satriales' back room. The vintage music playing in the background. Sills reading the paper. Patsy's crunching numbers. The regularness of life. Right before it's about to be disrupted. Tony sizes everybody up quickly, then asks about Vito. Patsy offers to have Bissell make tea a sandwich. Haven't heard that name before, but it's the last name of a guy we've seen briefly with Benny. Petey. He related to the vacuum Bissels. I always wondered. Tony says he's good as he scratches his neck with the back of his thumb. He's agitating for something. He's calculating permutations in his brain at internet speed. Slicing and dicing cobwebs with a mental scythe or something. He sighs, looks around, that music, the volume. At just the right fucking level to pull you into this moment. Makes you able to smell that backroom New Jersey air from wherever you are. Again, everybody's in their regularness of life, minding their own business. One of the calmer days on ship at sea. This ship. Their sea. Tony looks at everybody, low chatter. Bobby's hydrating. Kind of, anyway. Dante's playing cards, waiting for his watch alarm to go off. And Muscle's marinara is enjoying a cigarette while sitting down. A little muscle recovery. At which point, Tony twists his pinky ring, clenches his fist, rounds out all the permutations in his head, The pros and cons, best case, worst case scenario, like LeBron going into a fourth quarter of a closeout game. And then... What's your fucking problem? Huh? What the fuck is your problem? Perry questions Tony's challenge, or directive, or statement. Mind you, like Christopher did at the wedding. He says he's not trying to argue, but Tony takes it as such. He's clearly locked in on his target and not going to hold back at this point. He needs to send a message. Therapy validated this, right? Note Bobby's face as Tony kicks an empty chair aside and calls Muscles a fucking mutt. Bobby looks like he just got dunked on. Then Paulie looks over at Muscles, concerned, recognizing he's fucked. He's been around long enough to see his fair share of random acts of ass kickings, or worse. Now, Peneyala, whatever gets up. Should he have gotten up? Was that a mistake? You don't want a what? You don't want a what? This fucking guy, huh? The emphasis on the T of what? pages worth of scripts right there. This fucking guy. Fucking Philadelphia lawyer. What did he mean by that? The expression Philadelphia lawyer usually describes a crooked or unscrupulous lawyer. But Perry's just a guy who maximizes the value of his gym membership while aspiring to be able to count to 10 one day. Then, the punch. Tony knocks him to the floor faster than Rocky did Apollo in one. Lot of blood. Paneella, whatever is pissed. Jumps off the canvas faster than Clubber Lang in three. Doesn't take the standing eight count. This as the guys warn him to hold back. He might not know the rules after all. He lunges. But Bruce Lee, I mean Tony, pulls out a Jeet Kune Do move and locks up Perry's arm. My arm! <laughs> Comedy amidst the chaos. Creative aside, what a great frame as he approaches Tony. The wide shot. The whole gang. Everybody in shock. Mouths agape. The longhorn overhead. Recall that prominently featured in an episode moment between Tony and Ralph, too. So, Tony thoroughly destroys him. To my surprise, and probably like so many others, too. It's what he did to Jackie Jr. times five. There was some in there for Bobby. For hiding out with his fucking choo-choo trains the night he was shot. There was some in there for Christopher for all his fuck-ups and transgressions and for questioning his authority after all they've been through. My scar is better than your scar, you druggie. My threshold for violence meets or exceeds yours, and my leadership will always outshine whatever leadership I choose to let you have. There was some in there for AJ, for how he feels he's unable to have any kind of meaningful breakthrough. There was some in there for Junior, and by extension, Livia. His own blood wanting him dead. And finally, I have to believe there was some in there for the Bardo. For Costa Mesa. As in, why didn't you keep me? All's I've come back to is this shitty back room of a pork store. With that, he gives everybody a good look, letting them know they could be next one day. And again, that music. He excuses himself to the bathroom because, right? Polly snaps to have the guys clear Perry out. <laughs> Polly and his snaps, man comedy amidst the chaos in the bathroom Tony immediately throws up blood but not before giving himself a good long look in the mirror like he's Hannibal Lecter or something what does Tony call him? Hannibal Lecter also tying back to the Vanilla Sky reference earlier not unlike Tom Cruise's character David Ames checks himself in the mirror at the top of the film. Seriously, though, that look, it's as menacing as we've ever seen. A perfect needle drop right there could have been Nine Inch Nails Closer, especially the instrumental pieces in between the stanzas. That song is Tony's face in this moment. He got his moment of triumph his assertion or reassertion of his alpha status. But like everything else good in this show, it won't last long. He falls to his knees again, throws his head in the toilet. The overhead shot, the decrepitude of the bathroom, the dignity or lack thereof of his physical disposition right back to the regularness of life. Fade to black. Cue that music even louder. It's Every Day of the Week by the students. As every day of the week is recited in the song, it reminds us that when it's all said and done, it's mostly just the same shit, different day. Perry wasn't the only one that got punched in the mouth. The way this whole episode coalesced at the end, we did too. Finally, going Vanilla Sky one more time, gotta do things in threes whenever possible, I'll see you in another life, when we both are cats. Or Next time I drop a pod on your feed. That's all I got. See you next time.